I feel like, you know, all different parts in life, you get to a point where you're like this, you know, I ran out of steam, like life unexpected, my career came to an end. So it's like, there wasn't really acting to go do, right? And when you, and when you say it came to an end, was it was it like a just a noticeable decline I mean, in offers? I couldn't even get or? an audition offers. I couldn't even yeah. get an audition. It was like, there was nothing to do, mm-hmm. you know? And like, so I had to do something. And then, you know, and I'm listening, my mom's an Israeli woman. So I have that like chutzpah, which I still have of like, give me a job, give me a job, look what I can do. So there's a little bit of that. Right. And then right around the time I started shadowing, I got together with my now husband, who's like an entrepreneur and he's always been, and he's been really good about like, you're your own manager. Like you got to get out there. You want this, like you got to work for it. You got to show people how hard you're willing to work. And so I think it's just been like a constant push. And I think the directing thing has been a long steady stream of like, can I pull this off? Can I convince Mm -hmm. more people to hire me? Is this really going to work? You know what I mean? So like, that's what directing has really been. Right, right, right. It's been nonstop pushing. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. Visit www.petechapman.com to get your official director's chair wear, hoodies, hats, jackets, mugs, and other swag. And learn more about your host. You know, the funniest thing about each and every one of these episodes is I have to pull up a calendar and make sure I have the correct number before I say, welcome to episode 46 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman, starring Sherry Appleby. Uh, yeah, I got to go and I got to make sure I don't say the wrong number because I can't tell you how many times I've recorded the wrong number and have had to go back and redo the intro. But this intro is coming to you on May the 8th for our May 10th episode with the lovely Sherry Appleby. She is an actress and director, super talented. I have had the pleasure of following her on so many different shows, grabbing the directorial baton, as I like to say from Minx to Unprisoned. She's directed Grownish, Young Sheldon. Her acting career spans decades, although she's quite youthful. So, you know, it was a real pleasure to sit down with Sherry over Zoom like we do and just chat about this industry that we love so much. Now, before we get into the lovely conversation, I wanna talk a little bit about what's going on in the industry I guess unless you've been under a rock or in a cave of some sort, you are aware that the WGA, which is the Writers Guild of America, has gone on strike. We are entering the second week. It has caused or it has resulted in a shutdown on all writing activities. Obviously, writers rooms have closed. The show that I was on, Mere Mortals, has paused as our showrunners and our writers and producers are are on strike as they should be. And we will resume when this thing comes to a conclusion. The Directors Guild of America, of which I am a member and who I do not speak for, will be will begin negotiations on Wednesday, May 10th, which will be the date that this episode airs. And, you know, look, I, I'm no expert in this. I'm a car carrying member. I am a a man who is very appreciative of what the DJA does for its members, which is not only directors, it's second unit directors, it's the entire, you know, directorial department. So, you know, they're really making sure that we have our creative rights supported. Our compensation is as best as it can be. Our pension is funded. And, you know, in speaking about the, the writer's strike, like I said, I'm not an expert, but I, I do I do have an issue with what I feel is a constant framing of the concerns for writers. And I and, and you hear a lot that 
people are saying, well, writers used to be able to, you know, they need to be able to support themselves and have a middle-class lifestyle and be able to do certain things with the money. And, and, and while that is all true, I think that fundamentally the strongest part of the argument is that the studios have been making a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And the folks who are involved with the creation of that work are not being duly compensated for it. So yes, that due compensation would result in all of these things that get kind of presented in a lot of the conversations online or on the news about about pay and making more money, but it's not taking from a pot that is non-existent or is not growing. The pot has been growing exponentially, particularly with the, you know, the ex- exponential growth of of streaming content. And now writers and directors are looking to be appropriately compensated for something that is no longer really safely defined as new media. So all the sides will sit down at the table. The directors are up next. I'm sure the writers are looking to have more conversations with the AMPTP and we'll be following it closely. But in the meantime, I just hope that those who are fans of TV and film are aware that folks are really just trying to get what they deserve. There's no selfishness here on the on the parts of the writers or the directors or the actors who will be going into negotiations starting June 7th. And we just want to come to a fair deal that compensates everybody as they should be. So more to come. I advise you to keep your eye on the trades if you're really in the mix here from Deadline, Variety, The Hollywood Reporter. They're a great deal of resources to keep you up to date on what's going on. Script Notes is a great podcast, John August and Craig Mazin, uh, that they've done a couple, I think they call them sidecast episodes where they've talked specifically about the writer's strike and uh, stay tuned for more as, uh, as things move ahead. So with that, let's get into episode 46 with Sherry Appleby, actress, director, and more. Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one. All right, Sherry Appleby, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you. I'm so excited to be chatting with you. Yes, yes. I know we've been doing drive-by directing for at least three years now. So I'm glad we finally met in person on Minx. And then here we are chatting on Zoom. That's right. And I read your book. So I'm like ready to go. Oh, yes. <laughs> tell me what needs to go in the second edition. <laughs> well, um, I told you when I met you at the at the Unprison premiere, I really think that's the movie. The movie is the book. The movie is the book. That's interesting. You know, yeah, there's something to that. Maybe it's a three act journey and... It's like, I guess it's kind of like Fableman, right? Meet the, not me. I want, every time I want to call it Meet the Fablemans, but it's not that. It's just the Fablemans. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Well, I always like to, I try and ask people who have such a illustrious career like yourself in, in different parts of the industry. I usually ask actors what, if they, I'll pull out the name of the first character that they played and see if they can remember it. But I'm trying to find who that the characters I'm seeing on your at the top of your resume are kind of like little girl. Yeah. So, you know, I, I can you tell me about a character named Nicole, though? I have no clue what <laughs> movie is that. That's from the Bronx Zoo. Oh, yeah. I mean, episodes. I can't even I have no recollection of it. I was maybe like five years old. My parents put me in show business when I was three years old. So a lot of things I don't remember, but yet like my very first memories of life are sitting on set and feeling the lights. Mm. But a lot of those things I couldn't remember. Santa Barbara was a, Santa Barbara, I think was my first like scripted show and Uh it was a soap opera. And I just remember them sort of like bringing a group of kids on set, shooting it, and then them sort of like ushering us away. Do you do you remember it? Be what? What are your memories of it? Was it weird? Was it like, oh, it's just a cool thing I do? Like, how do you? I always wonder about that when I've dealt with like child actors. Like, how yeah. are they processing it? You know, I mean, to me, it was sort of like bigger than life. It was a lot like 
going to Disneyland, you know, you would get like donuts all the Uh time. I like loved maple donuts. And, you know, there was like the fascination of the lights hitting your face and like Mm -hmm. a little girl, like having your hair and makeup done and going through wardrobe and like you get so many compliments. It was really filled with compliments. Mm -hmm. I do remember that when the directors would give me direction, I was always getting really tense and nervous. Uh Like I was getting scared that I did something wrong or I was bad So that was a little nervous. And then my mom would always just ask me to make sure I went over to the director at the very end to say (laughs) thank you. But I mean, I I was really fascinated and I've always really loved it. Like to me, going to set was sort of Mm -hmm. like the end goal. Right, right. That's amazing. So we'll, we'll talk more about that. But I guess you said your parents put you in the business at three. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to ask people like, what's the first story that you remember having an impact on you? And so I'll throw that yeah. to you. I, you know, what, what was that for you? Yeah, I was just going through it. I was like, which one landed? I yeah. mean, I think I got, I, I got a guest star on Doogie Howser, and I had mm-hmm. to read for Stephen Bochco, which was a big deal. Uh-huh. You know, I had to audition for Stephen Bochco. I got the job and it was my first like real role. Like it was like the lead guest star. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a, I was in the hospital. I had a crush on Doogie. His best friend taught me how to kiss in a mirror. And then Doogie fell in love with my sister. And so I got really upset. And then Doogie took me and made, look at me, he made a meal for me to apologize. But the point was that for me as an actress, it was like a big job. You know what I mean? Like I was given a role, I was given me and I, I really relished it. I really, I, I thought I was like giving an Emmy. I thought I was winning an Oscar. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that was, yeah, 1993. That's Molly Harris. Yeah. Molly Harris. There you go. Molly Harris. And so- But, but like at in your home life was was storytelling like a big part of like you know what happened around the table or no. just in the house? Yeah. No, not at all. Like I no, we just I went to auditions in the same way that my brother went to soccer. Got it. It was just like my extracurricular activity, you know. And like my parents also put my brother in it, and he did it for like a month and decided he didn't like it, and that was kind of it. But so for me, storytelling wasn't really. It was just sort of about getting the job. Mm-hmm. So it was, was it kind of like a thing that you were doing that you liked? And it was, you know, I want to kind of move up the ranks of this yeah. thing that I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then in my 20s, I like really wanted to be a big star. Mm-hmm. So where'd you grow up? I grew up in West Hills. I went to Calabasas High School and that whole neighborhood mm-hmm. before it got really fancy. Uh, pre pre Kardashian. And yeah, pre- back when it was cool. Yeah, it was like <laughs> it was just like it was fancy, but not fancy like it is today. Yeah, and were you one of were you kind of joined by other students or other kids in your in your community? Were they in the in the industry as well? No, there. I mean, there was Danielle Fischel who was on Boy Meets World. She went mm-hmm. to my school. And Gabby Hoffman, who's, she was like on Transparent and uh-huh. we became really good friends. So there was like a handful of people and maybe some parents, but it was def- like, I was definitely an anomaly, you know, like I, I've, I've been working since I was like four years old. So I, there wasn't a lot of, there weren't a lot of other kids doing it, but it wasn't odd. I wasn't like growing up in Ohio. Right. <laughs> and so like, what was the, what was the path for you? Did you go to college or did you, you sure. kind of in there working and just continue working? Like what did it, what did yeah, the next so few I, years look like? When I got to high school, I was like enamored with high school. I love 90210. So I like really just wanted to be in high school and I did not want to spend those years on set, which I think were great because I think so many of the feelings and experiences I had in high school informed so much of my work as an actor and then I did become friends with Gabby Hoffman at the end of my senior year. And she took me to the volcano premiere and took me mm. on set of a movie. And she kind of like reintroduced me to it. And so my mom gave me an ultimatum because I was trying to decide like, where do I want to go to college? Do I want to go to USC and keep acting or should I go to Santa Barbara and kind of let it go? And so my mom gave me like one month to get a job. Mm. And one month to like yeah. get cast in a to get in a cast. Project. 
Wow. Yeah, she was like, you have one month. Like, try it for one more month. And if you can mm-hmm. get a job, go to USC and use that as a sign. And if you don't get anything, like, let it go and let that be something you did as a kid. Huh. And so I got to talk about commercial. And I changed, like, honestly. So then I went to USC. And and I didn't like USC. I really did not like USC for a lot of different reasons. And I dropped out. And then I went back my sophomore year, but I went back mm-hmm. my sophomore year with the intention that I was going to get a TV show so I could get out of college, but actually have something to do. Wow. I love that. I love this. This is like, <laughs> it's it's like the, it's nothing but big swings, right? It's like, yeah. it's like you know, Pete, you got a month to get <laughs> drafted right. into the NBA. <laughs> and if not, you know, it's got to go, you got to figure it out. Let it go. So can we, can we park in the, in the, like what you didn't like about film? Were you in film school or were you in? I got into theater school. Okay. Okay. So I, because I had spent so much of my life on set, I wasn't really up to snuff with the educational aspect. It was a little hard for me. Mm -hmm. One. Two, I was like so boy crazy and I didn't think the boys at school were that cute. So I was like, this is really a bummer. This is not what I thought college was going to be. I thought there would be a bunch of hot guys and I found them pretty much unattractive. So that was like, ma- that was really number one. Uh-huh. And then also <laughs> I, <laughs> truth, I'm just telling the truth, Pete. Here I am telling the truth. And the other thing was, you know, I had been self-supportive since I was like nine or 10 years old. And so I was writing checks for $60,000 walking around campus. Mm. And I scheduled my day to start school at 7 a.m. So I could be done at nine. So I could go to auditions all day long. And I was like, I'm spending $60,000 for this. Right. No hot guys. Can't really learn anything. And like, I was acting and I was like, I'm acting anyways. Right. I was like, this just is not how I want to spend all my money that I have worked my whole life to achieve. Right. That's that's super interesting. I hadn't even thought about it like that. You know, just the fact that because when I look at the at the credits, I mean, it was you were you were working. You know, I mean, it, and, it, and it seems like a lot of like maybe you were the go to, you know, go to kid for a lot of these different shows from like Who's the Boss, Knots Landing, Dear John, Night and Day, Doogie Howser, as you mentioned. Like it, it, it's like episode after episode after episode. So you were you were you were a working professional. And I did 70 national commercials. So you don't even see, you know what I mean? So I was like working, but I made all my money. So like when it came time to like buy a car, I bought my car. When it's in time to pay for college. And so when you go to college and you're writing these big checks, I was like, man, I could be traveling around the whole world. But instead I'm sitting at SC and I wasn't really like taking in what I should have been taking in. Does Mm. that make sense? Yes, yes. I mean, because, but it's also like, it's a, it's a really unique perspective shift that you'd have to make at a very young age, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and that, that's a, that's a tall order. I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. I think just the fact that I was paying for it, I wasn't like casual about it. I was like, am I getting enough out of this? Should I be doing something else with all this money is basically yeah. how I was thinking about it. And I wasn't having the fun that I thought college would be giving me. And I really had fun in high school. So I didn't, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to come to college and like let loose. I was like, I let loose. I'm kind of ready to go and crush it. You know, All like right. I just sort of had that attitude. Right. So you, so you came out of there sophomore year. It was about, you were saying now it was about getting a show. So I was just like, I have to get a TV show because when I dropped out in my freshman year, I became like, an actress living in Park La Brea and like going out at night. And like, I was like, I don't want to be this kind of kid. Like, that's not who I am. So I was like, I have to get a TV show. So I got a pilot. I did the pilot for this show called Roswell. I did it Mm -hmm. during my Christmas break. I auditioned seven times for the show, which that in itself was a long story. And then the day I finished my sophomore year, the show got picked up and went to series. Mm -hmm. And so I did that show for three years. And so by the time I got out of that show, my high, my college experience was done. Right. So I, right. I got in and out and I, I wrote it out. I do want to say, cut print, like 10 years later, I finished my college degree through the University of Phoenix. I did it online while sitting on set of Life Unexpected. So I do have a college degree, but I just did it like a little bit broken up. <laughs> 
Right. I mean, look, I argue there's a, a big debate amongst directors about the, the the value of going to film school, you know? And I always say, like, you get, you know, if, if you put a gun to my head and make me really, like, put like put it in columns, you know, like pros and cons, it's the relationships, you know, it's the pedigree, quote unquote, that you might immediately, that might immediately be bestowed upon you from people who don't know you. But like much of what I learned that has made me successful was after I graduated. Mm-hmm. You know, I just had been kind of taught how to tell a story, but then I had to learn how to do it through like set decorum, <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, and manage like personalities and like manage myself through all the ups and downs of it. And those things were all post-graduation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do think having not gone to film school, I sort of romanticized like the education that people got in terms of like the different genres and the different mm-hmm. filmmakers and like really having like a film theory and like how that would come into play in the way you sort of communicate, like in meetings, like, you know, how do you communicate how you would want to make your film to the executives that you're pitching mm-hmm. to? I think just that knowledge speaks a lot to how people look at you and sort of perceive you and then inevitably trust to hire you in these jobs and bestow all this money on you. And so some of that I'm a little bit of a hustler about, like I have to like fill in that education because I didn't have it, but I do have like a knowledge of having spent my life on set and like just having observed so many other people do it. I mean, that's, that's probably the best film school ever. Like how, how many... How many episodes of TV do you think you've act like been working on before you direct it? Like, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, like as an actor, like how many episodes yeah. do you think you were there for? I think I've been there for somewhere between 175 to 200 episodes. Yeah. I mean, you you know what's <laughs> going on. You know, you know when shit's going well, you yeah. know when it's not, you know? Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you... So if you started around three, then you're mm-hmm. kind of doing these, you know, characters here and there, then Doogie Hauser in 93 is like the role that you're like, okay, I've really got something meaty to, to dig in here to. Like, what was your process like? How, like, were you going to like acting classes? Like, how were you like building your tool? And then was there a point where you had to like refine that process as you started doing you know, things like that as well. Yeah, for sure. So like all growing up, I always was taking acting classes. Like I took a million classes. My mom was so great. She took me everywhere. Like I did scene study with Kathy Messick on the weekends. I was taking like improv classes. Mm -hmm. I would take dance classes, but everything was filtered through the lens of like being an actor. And then when you get onto Roswell, you know, I was like 20. I did a rat show from like 19 to 22. So at that point, you're also making like 22 episodes a season. So a lot of it became like learning the lines and regurgitating it. But, you know, you get off that show and you kind of are like, man, I got myself into a lot of rhythms of playing the same beats, you know? So that was a little bit like you had to unravel some of those things that you've learned. Right. But I would say that when I got, and then I did Life Unexpected and I was a little bit more mature. And so my my own depth was stronger. So the character could be richer, right? And I had spent time in New York and I was like auditioning for theater. So my acting and my life experiences were richer. Right. But when I got onto Unreal, actually, when I did Girls and then Unreal, I started working with an acting coach, Warner Laughlin. And I worked with Warner on all 38 episodes of Unreal. And that's when I also started directing. And that really changed the way I built out performances. And so I think my work as an actor really shifted once I started doing that. And what does that look like when you work with an acting coach? Like, mm-hmm. you, every, you get the script, they get mm-hmm. the script, like... Run me through what that what that looks sure. like from receiving that script in your email and up until the time where you hit the set. Yeah. So I basically go through the entire episode, scene by scene, line by line. We start, we first talk about like, what's the general arc of the episode? Like, what mm-hmm. is the, the general arc of the entire episode, including the other character scenes? And then what's the general arc of my character, right? And then as you go scene by scene, 
you kind of break out this moment's kind of thinking this, hey, if I put in this prop or if I played this thing here, that'll sort of foreshadow this. Or maybe, you know, they're saying that she's moving, you know, some kerosene thing from here to there. Maybe that kerosene thing is something that her dad gave her that's going to come up in the third act. So let's make sure that we really build a moment out about that. So when I do go to hold it, it has more meaning to me. So it was just like layering things as much as possible and working through it as much so that when I did come to set as an actor, I could just like deliver right away. Because as you right. know, as a director, especially on TV, you're just coming to like execute, right? And right. that's the same thing as an actor, especially if you're number one on the call sheet, you have to just come in and be able to kill right away. Right. So I would have notes every single scene. This is the beat. This is where it turns. This is, you know, this is where the scene starts. This is where the scene ends. And then I'd have the arc for every scene for the entire episode. And I'd keep those notes in my notebook so that before I go to, you know, shoot that scene, I reference them mm -hmm. and then I'm ready to go. So I do that for every episode, including the episodes that I was starting to direct on. And so I would then start to do that entire process for all the characters. Mm -hmm. And and are you then sharing with your acting coach what you've designed after you've gone through the whole script? Oh, no, I do that with her. Oh, you do that with? Okay, gotcha. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. so we okay. do that together. So like we talk through the whole thing. So it's really just about like getting the script and having somebody to sort of analyze the material with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just so you can go in and form. So you're not just like making random choices in the moment or if you... Or what's really nice, I think, too, is that you, David Nutter taught me this when I was doing the pilot of Roswell with him. It's like you prepare as much as possible so that when you do go to set, you can throw everything away and be in the right. moment because you have all of that history and that like education behind you. Right. Now, what do you do when the writing is not good? As a <laughs> And the as an, as not an, good as like an actor as, or as a director. Uh, I'd love to hear both as an actor. Okay. As an actor, what you do when the writing is not good is that you just try to make it as rich as possible, right? So you have to give things as much context as possible. And there's like tricks that you have to sort of charm the audience, charm the mm -hmm. moments, and just try to be as real as possible. Mm-hmm. That's mm -hmm. as an actress. Like, there's only so much you can control, right? Because your job as an actor is not to be giving notes on the script. Right. And when it's not great as a director, I just really try to focus on transitions. And I just try. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Just try to I focus mean, on the transitions and make it all seem as smooth as possible. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting challenge. Okay, so... You started directing on Unreal. Was mm -hmm. that the first one? Okay. Mm -hmm. And and how did that how did that happen? Did you say, look, you want me back <laughs> for well, another season? I, I gotta start directing, or was yeah. it like well basically I got off this other show, Life Unexpected. Mm -hmm. And my career was basically flatlined after that. Because I was 30 years old and I was playing a mom to a 16-year-old and it was just like back, that just didn't fly. And so I had like a full year of no work. And I was like, what am I going to do? I can't really sit at home. So, and I had always been interesting in directing, but I mean, so now I'm saying I grew up at three. I didn't see a woman on set. I did 65 episodes of Roswell. And on the very last episode, we had a woman, hmm. Allison Libby Brown. And she walked on set and I was like, What? Yeah. Like, this is the first time, okay? So I've now been working 20 years. I'd never seen a woman. And I would go on my lunch breaks and watch editing. And like, I was always asking questions. And I became friends with all of the directors. But it was just never something that you could see. Right. And then when I did Life Unexpected, we did 25 episodes of that show. And we had one woman, Liz Allen. And she had to be there. But she had to be shadowed by a man, Gary Fleeter, to make sure she didn't mess up. This is only 13 years ago. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's crazy that a woman could do this. Again, I can't believe a woman could do this. So then I just started because I was not working. I couldn't work. 
I started shadowing. I started shadowing like crazy on every single show I could. And I reached out to every showrunner I could reach out to. And I just made that my job, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was learning a lot. And then every show that I was shadowing on, they would inevitably give me a job as an actor. So it was like, Hmm. I was starting to see how directing was feeding my acting career. And then my acting career was feeding my directing career. And then, so that was really interesting. And I started learning a lot. And I was shadowing on like Beverly Hills 90210, Franklin and Bash. And then I was friends with Jenny Connor, who was at the time the showrunner on Girls. And I texted Jenny like seven times. I was like, please let me, I'll fly out there. I need to see how the show is made. And I got, she let me come out and shadow Jesse Peretz. Mm-hmm. And so I shadowed Jesse Peretz. And then like two days in, Lena was like, you should play this part of Adam Driver's new girlfriend. (laughs) And so that changed the course of my acting career. Wow. Because then I was cool again, which was great. Always like to be cool again. And then, but in the meantime, I had made a short for Funny or Die and I had made a show for Yahoo. So I was... And I made a short for an ally thing. So I made three shorts. So by the time that Unreal got picked up or we did the pilot for it, I was like, if this thing goes, you have to give me an episode. I've already shouted like 10 times. I have shorts. And so I got them to give me an episode in the second season. I did one in the third season. And then I did two in the fourth season, including the series finale. Man, I love this. I love this story, you know. (laughs) But just because it's like, it's all underneath the hood. It's something you'd never know, right? Like yeah. just, I mean, in, in all the passing by that we've done before we become, you know, friends and chatting and all this stuff. Like, yeah. you know, I I never would know like the engine behind all of it. And I think that's, that's really cool. And I, I wonder if, what do you think gave you the like confidence to move with such deliberate specificity? Oh, you mean, well... Desperation, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I feel like, you know, all different parts in life, you get to a point where you're like this, you know, I ran out of steam, like life unexpected, my career came to an end. So it's like, there wasn't really acting to go do. Right? And, when you, and when you say it came to an end, was it was it like a just a noticeable decline I mean, in offers? I couldn't even get or? an audition. Offers. I couldn't even yeah. get an audition. It was like, there was nothing to do, mm-hmm. you know? And like, so I had to do something. And then you know, and I'm listening, my mom's an Israeli woman. So I have that like chutzpah, which I still have of like, give me a job, give me a job, look what I can do. So there's a little bit of that. And then right around the time I started shadowing, I got together with my now husband, who's like an entrepreneur and he's always been, and he's been really good about like, you're your own manager. Like you got to get out there. You want this, like you got to work for it. You got to show people how hard you're willing to work. And so I think it's just been like a constant push. And I think the directing thing has been a long steady stream of like, can I pull this off? Can I convince mm-hmm. more people to hire me? Is this right. really going to work? You know right. what I mean? So like, that's what directing has really been. Right, right, right. It's right. been nonstop pushing. And it's working. <laughs> <laughs> this is Ellen Rappaport, the creator of Minx. And you're listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook is Pete Chapman's book from Michael Weasley Productions. What started in 1993 has been a marathon of persistence and creative pivots, transitioning from indie filmmaker to teaching at NYU's acclaimed film school, to running a production company, to directing television commercials, and ultimately eyeing a return to the feature films that gave him a start. A mixture of how-to, self-help, inspiration. This book is for any person targeting a successful career in the creative arts. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook from Michael Weezy Productions is available on Amazon and anywhere else you get your books. Don't forget about your local mom and pop shops, people. So let's kind of transition to the, to the director part of, of your, of your, of your life here. What were some of, what did you learn where I mean, because you shadowed, but no matter how much shadowing you you one does, it's like it's the kind of job that like until you do it, you have no idea what the demands are like fully. Um, mm-hmm. What did you? What were some of the big things that you noticed on like your first episode or episodes where you were like, "Wow, I never knew that this was the life of the director." 
Okay, well, I would say my very first wow moment of even getting behind the scenes shadowing, I'd say coming from being an actor was like, wow, they don't even know the actors' names. (laughs) And like when you're an actor, you think that everyone's just talking about you guys the whole time. Uh Right? Uh You think Uh they're talking about whatever you're, if you were in a bad mood or so-and-so said something mean to you. Like you think that's what's going on. And then you start shadowing. You're like, they're just calling you the characters. They don't even, they're not even mentioning you. So that was like really like a wake-up call big Mm -hmm. time. Then the next thing that was surprising coming from being an actor was as you're an actor, you walk on set and they applaud you. Like they're Uh just complimenting you all day long. And as a director, you're sort of looking around. You're like, anyone, does anyone notice how hard I'm working? Or does right, anyone want right. to give me a compliment? Does anybody right. want to tell me what they thought of the episode when I turned it in? Like, right. anybody? There's like, you're like begging it, for compliments. It is lonely. I mean, I literally like edit, like email the editors, like how did it turn out? Did they like it? Like, what was the response? If you, if know, you didn't, if you didn't have a chair on set, you wouldn't know where to go. You wouldn't know where to stand. You, no you're, clue. you're just like the odd person out at the party, wondering right. if you should just get a drink so you can look like you're doing something. You know, and yeah, it's a it's yeah. a lonely ass job. It's lo- and and there is not like nobody's compliment. I mean, like people start to compliment you, but it's very few and far between, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you really have to be really confident in yourself. You have to be really sure of yourself. You have to just be committed to your ideas and not get pushed around because mm-hmm. you can easily get pushed around. But you need to be like, that's not the shot I need. I, and that's a great shot. I just don't need that. Like I've right. cut the thing in my head. I, I don't need that. Right. So that was one. I also had to start to train myself at the beginning, like not to look at my watch because I'd be like, stare at my watch with, okay, I won't ask them for four more minutes. Like if they're mm-hmm. ready, like I'll just, you know, I would like literally stare at my watch just like all day being like, are you guys ready? Okay, are you ready now? Like, and that's annoying. So, like, I learned to just sort of set back a little bit. And, you know, I think the big thing with directing that I've learned, I think, sort of calls back to the thing about acting on Unreal was just like the more prepared you are, the more confident you are. And because you as a director are setting the tone, that confidence can create like a much more relaxed vibe. Mm-hmm. And I think can put people at ease. And I think that's like really the main thing that you want to do, especially in episodic is just come in, feel really confident, mm-hmm. you know, let everybody trust you, make, watch, like let they they know that you're going to get us through our day in a fluid day way. You're going to cover it really well. And just, you know, how to communicate to the actors and doing it all with like that level of preparedness where you can make it fun. Yeah. You know, do you, do you feel like you have like a, a a superpower as far as the actor to actor or I'm sorry, director to actor communication by virtue sure. of all of the time? So like so in what ways do you, does that work to your advantage or like what are some situations you, you can think of where you you're like, yeah, good thing I've I've done this a hundred times. You sure. Know? Like, I mean, it could be a little thing like, hey, I want you to walk in the door and turn around. And they're like, I don't know how to do that, you know? Mm-hmm. And then you're like, okay, well, let me show you how to do it. And they're like, oh, okay, okay, I see. I get it now. Mm-hmm. So it's just like a little physical thing of knowing how to operate your body in a way. You know, mm-hmm. on shows that you've worked through, like Grownish, it's a lot of really young kids mm-hmm. that have never worked before. So it's like, let me just show you, if you move your body this way, this is where your light source is and the camera's over the shoulder in this way. So let mm-hmm. me just come in, has having been a young actor myself and learning right. the, the mechanics of acting, you know, like that, the reason I keep going back to Grownish is because that's really satisfying to me. Like, let mm-hmm. me pass on all this information to these young kids that don't, have never been in this environment and let me give them some things and then like watch them fly. Like, that's really satisfying. Right. You know, right. and then like, right. in terms of the acting with better actors, it's more like just like any pots, we ground it. Can you pick it up? Can you, whatever mm-hmm. it is. And it's like, just that acting lingo that they know I know what I'm talking about. Right. I generally try to not turn the camera off when I'm on someone's coverage. I try to just keep it moving so I don't get them to like cut, lose the momentum, hair and makeup comes over, then they have right. to psych themselves up again. I try to just keep it rolling as much as I can. And by that, you mean like when you're when you're in for like the tighter stuff? I mean, I generally try to keep that thing on as much as I can. <laughs> but yeah, like if I'm doing a wide shot, I'll do it once or twice and I'll cut or whatever. But once I get into coverage and I'm closer, I try to just keep the camera on and stay with them. 
And then if I do it two or three times and I need a line, I just go in and I'll pick up one line and I can give mm-hmm. them like the rat-a-tat-tat. It sounds like this. The comedy mm-hmm. is that. And get mm-hmm. them to say it a few times. And I try to get in and out pretty quick. Have you have you run into actors that are resistant to that? Not really. Yeah. I yeah. only had like one actress that was like, and it was maybe towards the be- more beginning of me acting that was a little bit like she's asking for too many takes mm-hmm. or she's like, and I was like, mm, I don't really think this has anything to do with me. Right. <laughs> I have two. I, want, <laughs> I have a couple of questions. I want to make sure I don't yeah. forget this one. This was, I was thinking it earlier, but like all of your time on set as an actor receiving direction from so many different directors, what has been some of the worst direction that you've received and what's mm-hmm. been some of the best? Mm-hmm. Well, like when I was younger, there were guys like Dave Semmel who would like come in and the same thing. He would like really sort of like champion you as like a young actress and like pump you up on the side before you go into the scene and like really talk to you what it was about and like give you a lot of confidence and like mm-hmm. working with someone like him or David Nutter, by the time their episode ended, I was like, I'm a better actor. Like, mm-hmm. I know I'm better at this. So like, you know, those things really came into fruition, like really helped. Like when I was doing like the nude scene with Lena Dunham, she was directing it with, with Adam Driver. Like she just came and sat in my room with me for an hour and just made me feel safe. You know, mm-hmm. like, I think it's that thing of just feeling like the person behind the camera has my back. Like they're not right. going to just like leave me out there. Like they are directing me in a way that feels like very proactive and also feels like really educated, right? Mm. And then there were things, you know, other directors, it's like if you're in a sex scene or something and they're like, you know, right in action, now, you know, go after him. I'm like, oh, don't talk to me that way. This is uncomfortable. Right. Like, right. you know, like things like that. Sounds pretty intimacy yeah. coordinator. Yeah, for thank sure. God. I love an intimacy coordinator. Just bring me an intimacy coordinator all day long. It makes it so much easier. Or just like, I love line readings. I like love hearing them as an actor because I'm just like, what does it sound like? Ah, Mm -hmm. I understand. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I, so sometimes if a director would just like talk you to death through the whole story, I'd be like, (sighs) I'm like, I know the story. Slowly closing and blazing over. You know, but that, you know, what's so interesting is that that's one of the first things in like film school. They say, oh, don't give a line reading, you know, and, and, I remember there's one time I didn't do it and I was like, I should have just gave that damn line reading because this, I, this is not it, you know? And, no. and, I, and I always knew it wasn't, but I didn't do it because I had this, you know, coda in my in the back of my mind that I was supposed to adhere to. And yeah, but, but I think you now? can find it if, if, if the rhythm's off. Because sometimes, sometimes it's like, it's like there's just a rhythm to something or there's an emphasis that, you know, if you're on the wrong syllable, it doesn't, it does not communicate the point. I agree with you. I love giving line readings because I've learned now to more from directing than I did as an actor, just the musicality of all the scenes. Like it needs mm-hmm. to sound like this. She just said this, your line needs to sound this. It's all a sound. So if you're right. hitting it wrong, right. the music, the music doesn't work. Right, right. So as things are, as you're going from from being in front of the camera to being a little bit more behind it in the beginning, do you have to get new repres- reps for yeah. directing? Well, I got lucky. I'm at this wonderful agency called UTA mm-hmm. that has been so supportive. Love them. So I have my wonderful acting agent, Scott Schachter, and then he found me a wonderful episodic television directing agent, Matt Baldowski. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, I want to start looking for features. And so then I have another agent at UTA, Anna Flickinger, all at UTA. Got it. Got it. Got it. But got it. I mean, had I not been at UTA, you know what I mean? Like it would have been hard to start getting a, a directing agency somewhere else. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the, you get, you have these point people and that transition needs someone who's going to be able to be, you know, have those relationships and 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 be able to support what you're trying to do. Well, to speak to that, when I got yeah. up on Real, they, I was like, okay, I just want to focus on directing. I want to give acting a break. So I just did four years and it was emotional and I was tired. And my agents were like, we are totally supportive. We are never going to be able to convince anybody to hire you. 
And I was like, what do you mean? I just did four episodes. They were so good. And they were like, that's just seen as nepotism. They're like, mm -hmm. you're the star of the show. Nobody's going to hire you to direct another episode. Mm -hmm. They were like, go work all your connections. And after you get a few, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to help you then, but we can't really help you now. So Roswell got rebooted. People Magazine interviewed me and they're like, what mm -hmm. do you think of the reboot happening? I'm like, great. I can't wait to direct it. Huh. So that's how I got that one. And then the second one, I just sent a tweet to Marlene King for The Perfectionist. I'd never met her. She was doing Pretty Little Liars. And I sent uh -huh. her a tweet and I asked her for a job that way. And that's how I got the second one. So then I was up to six. And then after that, then my agency was really able to start. But I, it took me like definitely hustling and pushing to get that to work. Chutzpah. Chutzpah, as they say. I'm professional <laughs> in chutzpah. I love it. Yeah. Okay. So then from that point, it's what I, I have all of your credits in one place. I'm mm. trying to carve out the directing credits because you're still working in front of the camera. But mix call me Pete. Queens. <laughs> I know. The Wonder Years. That's awesome. Maggie Roswell, of course, for two episodes. New Amsterdam, Grownish, Young Sheldon, Unprisoned. So are you having any particular focus on drama versus comedy? Or like what's your kind of vision for? what you're doing now and 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 looking to do as you direct. Well, okay. So it's very interesting you said that because you wrote in your book how you got started. You were like, I am just going to say that I am a half hour mm -hmm. comedy guy. Like you made a real distinct choice. And so lately when I've been in these meetings, people keep asking me that. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, Pete just says he's a comedy guy. I should just mm -hmm. say that. But it's really tough because I'm like really an, and I'm an, like an hour drama actress. That's where mm. I've really like cut my teeth and I'm really good in the hour drama space. But I surprisingly found myself working a lot in the comedy world as a right. director, right? which I love. I love it so much. So my answer is I really just like working. But then mm. after I say that, I'm like, that's not what Pete said. <laughs> that's not what Pete it's, did. It's, I it's, it's weird. It's so, you know. The, the genres are all mixed. Like right. now they're putting White Lotus is as a half a, into the comedy, into the right. comedy thing. And you're like, that's kind of a drama, but it's kind yeah. of a comedy. Like it's all kind of up and down. Flight Attendant was in the comedy category. Then put know? me in the comedy category, I guess. <laughs> you know, but it, it, it is tough. I, I, I feel like my kind of angle to try and feel like I didn't drop the ball was to gauge the room. And maybe if there were like specific dramas in the room, like and meaning like did they have dramas at that studio or at that network mm. that I was interested in, mm. then I then I'd probably sprinkle in my desire to do those shows and why. Mm. But I mean, there's no there's no right or wrong. That's for sure. I mean. I love the comedy. I'm having so much fun with it, but I also love doing drama because I know how to really sort of milk that and get those moments. And that's really satisfying as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the truth is I really just like working. I love to work. I love going from like wrapping a show on Friday and starting a new show on Monday. And I like love, I just love the constant flow of it all. Right. So talk about that. That's, that's yeah. a thing that I think, you know, I always think about the directors listening and like, what is it like for you as a director to wrap a show on on a Friday and start the prep of the next on Monday and you still got to edit that show you wrapped on Friday somewhere in prep? Like, how do you keep all of that, you know, moving and organized and, yeah. you know, it's and, and your sanity at the same time? Yeah. Totally. I mean, one, I think I just feel so, I know it sounds cliche, but I feel so blessed to be in the position where I'm going from one to the next that I am yeah. like just on cloud nine, right? Mm -hmm. Like if I, like the last two years have been the best two years of my life in regards to my career. I have loved the flow so much, like all of it's such a surprise. And because I never saw women directing, I feel this real strong sense that I have to like kill it every time mm -hmm. I go on set. So there's a little bit of this thing of like, God, I can't believe I've convinced so many people to hire me that I like, right? And so, but when you're coming in as an episodic director, you got to make choices and decisions really, really quickly, mm -hmm. right? You got to make decisions really, really quickly. I prep with the same like 
theory, like in-depth world and way that I did as an actor. I kind of go through that before I even start day one on prep. So as soon as we get into that concept meetings, I can already sort of see like, okay, I have a pitch for this. I have a pitch for this. I try to make decisions as quickly as possible. And then the thing that really helps is that I shot list the entire episode at the very end of prep. So before I start day one, I have the entire episode prepped like transition in, all my shots, transition out, all my, you know, overheads. So that almost the week of shooting, I'm not really thinking, I'm just doing. Right. Are you sharing that prep with anyone or are you keeping it oh, yeah. for yourself? No, I show it to everybody, whoever who, wants it. Who, who, is there any like, like, Ugh. are there key recipients that you make sure yes. you have it? Who are, the who DP, are those people? the first AD, the second AD, scripty, all the producers, the writer, mm-hmm. the showrunner. I also want them to see that I have the work. Right, right. Because then they're just like, ah, uh-huh, uh-huh, this girl's got it. I don't have to worry. Like, and then that way, if someone has COVID or someone's late, they know you can throw the whole schedule up in the air and mm-hmm. anything you present to me, I can shoot your whole episode right now. Right, right. right? And so guess like, what? It's going to happen. So, yeah, you know, it and, happens on every episode. Something gets blown up with the schedule. And I'm like, just tell me what scene you want to go to next. I'm ready to go. Yeah. You know, the wildest thing, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast or not, but I remember I was doing, I was doing one show and so many people got COVID that, that I was in, I think I was on day three of prep and I had to start shooting because the episode that was shooting had nothing it could shoot. And then I had to shoot to just keep the production going. And it was all the like, the big scenes that I was like going to push to the end of my my thought process because it's like, that's some complicated shit. I'll, I'll think about that after I, and it was like, no, yeah, you're doing that Thursday. Yeah. And it, it just, you never, whatever you think would never happen is gonna happen at some point. So your prep is is your protection, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So like, once you kind of get that done, you can go into shooting, be like a little bit more relaxed because you're like, mm-hmm. whatever happens, I've already thought through this whole thing. And also if I show up on the day and someone's like, I actually want to stand over here. I'm like, okay, no problem. I know where I have my cameras. If I just shoot, move that camera to here, the whole thing mm-hmm. still works. And then that way, I also know when I'm going through the timings with my AD during prep, I can be like, that scene is not two hours. That scene is definitely a three and a half hour thing because I know how I've blocked it. Like, I know where I need to, like, move things around because I feel very responsible to, like, get that thing done in the 12 hours or get the whatever done. And then generally, in terms of notes, editing the other episode that I just finished, you can sort of watch and send notes the night before. Like if I get the episode on a Tuesday when I come home from work or in between setups or during lunch, I can watch the episode, send notes, Mm -hmm. get into Evercast during lunch, send notes again. Mm -hmm. You know, I definitely think that the Evercast thing and not editing in person is makes it so much more challenging and you just don't see as much stuff and as much footage as you would, as I would like to. And can you explain Evercast just for somebody who who maybe hasn't used it? Yeah. So now when you edit because of COVID, I only have had one show that is now editing in person. It's basically like Zoom for editing where it's like you see you, you see the editor, and then you see the screen. And so that's how you edit. And you'll be like, hey, that line, I don't, what other line readings do I have for that? And you're like, they'll pull up all the different lines for all the different takes or, you know, camera angles you have for that one line. It's just slower on, on Evercast. And, and it takes so much longer that I don't think you're digging through as many, as much, you know, as much performance is right. as you could because it takes so long. And also when you have that constraint for a half hour comedy of two days of editing or four days of an hour drama, I think, you know, you I at least am trying to get that thing into the best shape possible to give the producers a real sense of like what I went out to make. So I try right. to deliver to them a really strong cut that, you know, is like as close to time as possible and is really like what I was like, my intention of shooting was. Right. There's also a, a, a weird thing because I often find myself like negotiating for more time because it's like if you get a cut and you're doing it like you're describing remotely while prepping another show, like you send your notes on on the editor's cut and then they implement them 
and then you get them back and then you give notes again. And you're like, well, if I would have been there, we would have done three, four different things. And so it's not really like work in progress day one. You just applied one little kind of set of global notes because also you don't want to like be too specific and then like it doesn't work. And if you watch it, you'd be like, oh, that shit is ridiculous. It would never work. Mm -hmm. So your notes are also like maybe 80% of your notes. And it's a weird kind of amorphous, incomplete process. I completely agree. And it's like, I feel like a real responsibility because I because the whole gig of episodic directing is getting hired again, right? Mm-hmm. Like you just want to be a return director. So it's like, I want to turn that cut in so strong so that they know when they hire me that like, they're not going to have to go in and like recraft that thing. Right. 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 Like it's pretty close. It's like in a really good shape. So with that time constraint and mostly not just being in person, the not in person part is the thing right. that's like, it's a bummer. Do you communicate with the editor while you're shooting? It depends. Like sometimes if I shoot something and I'm a little like, oh, did I, should I have like, mm-hmm. is that thing going to cut? How is that thing cutting? Do I need to pick up something? I'll ask them to kind of give me like a rough pass of it if they can. Okay. Uh-huh. Can you just like roughly put this thing together so I can just look at it to make sure I don't need an insert or I don't need a this? Right. Or I'll kind of check in maybe once, like, you know, day three, how's it looking? Are you missing anything? Mm-hmm. You know, but not too much. I just, you know, once they've gotten the episode and I'm like, okay, I know they're going to deliver their cut on Friday. Maybe I'll check in on Wednesday. How's it coming? Do you have any questions? Do you need anything? Yeah. Yeah. Generally, a lot of the editors have made a lot of episodes of the show, so they know how to put it together. So it's not, and they're with it longer than you end up being as a director. Yeah, they're in that chair with through nine different points of view. (laughs) I mean, you know they're going to recut it, so. Right, right. So that that preparation is what gets you through the potential chaos of of prepping and posting simultaneously. Yeah, prep Um, is everything. This is a more broad question, but like if you if you had the keys to the castle, so to speak, like what parts would you change of our job to enhance it in 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 a way that lets us be let lets the story be realized, you know, more creatively? Well, I would say if I could change anything, I'd make it a lot easier to get jobs. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But what part would I change? I mean, you know, you are an episodic director. So like your voice only counts so much, right? Mm-hmm. Like casting your A-volt, but you're not really leaned on that much, although you're sort of overseeing the acting. So you're mm-hmm. kind of like, wish you kind of listen to me because now we're also not even auditioning people. We're just hiring off tape. Right. 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 So like that part, I wish your voice could be heard a little bit more. Generally, I don't feel too constrained with how I'm shooting. Mm-hmm. I haven't, t- on all the shows, I've never felt like a constraint of you're not allowed to do this or this isn't how we do this. I don't, f- I've never felt that. Okay. But I think I'm just at that stage where it's like, I want to like prep for a month. I want to prep for two months. I want to shoot for four months. I want to edit for 10 weeks. Like, I just want like a bigger landscape. I want to see what happens when it's like really my voice, like when it's really fully my vision, when I really can like invest in a story and really give it my all, because it's almost like, you know, now I've learned the mechanics and like, I'm a you know, I'm like a a worker. Like I know how to come in and like churn an episode out and it's going to be good and I'm going to hit the beats, but I want to know what it's like to like really craft something. Mm. Do you, and and is that what the, is that where features are kind of? That's sort of the dangling carrot in front of me. I really want to do it. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you will. I've had several friends and, and, and people in my home say you're really talented at what you do. Oh, so thanks. it's just, you know, it's the it's the beginning part of the journey. But I feel like what you should probably do is just say, I will do a feature in the next week or I'm, <laughs> <laughs> or I'm quitting. And then, you know, so I'll, I'll read deadline in about okay. 10 days and it'll be on the, it'll be in the, in the I'm going to give myself a month. How's that? <laughs> a week feels tight, but I'll give you a month. Okay. 
Yeah, that's kind of where I feel like I would like to just have more time or even a pilot, something where you can like really be the one that's like building something out from the ground mm-hmm. up. I really want to see like where my creativity could take me in that way. Yeah. It, do you, is there any part of the performative aspect of being an actor that you apply to your job as a director? For sure. 100%. What would that, what would that be? Well, it's so funny because I always come on, I'm always like, what are the other directors like? You know, I'm like, Mm -hmm. I want to know, like, how do they do it? But I feel like I walk in, I'm like, hey, you guys, like warming them up. Here we go. We're shooting the show. Like, you know, I'm like keeping it moving, keeping Mm -hmm. it fun. And like, if I want the actor to have a lot of fun, I'm having a lot of fun off camera, you know, like mm-hmm. I sort of try to like come in and like bring that energy and bring that spirit. And that is a performance. Yeah. You know, like it's not, I'm not just sitting next to the monitor asking me, you know, telling like the ADDL action, like mm-hmm. I'll say action and sort of the tone that I want to kind of take it through with, you know, like the way you sort of you know, schmooze with the DP to get the thing you want or the way you communicate with the, you know, the camera operators to make sure everyone feels respected and heard and appreciated, but I still want the framing to look the way I want it to look. Right, 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 right. You know? Well, I know, and <laughs> I know down, from- Tilt to the right. From Unprisoned too, as well, like you had that, the dancing scene and I just saw like you were, you were keeping, you were like the MC of that, of that set, you know? Keeping everybody excited and going. Yeah. Well, I mean, that little girl was dancing by herself. It's like, who's going to dance by themselves for two different cameras? You're like, I'll dance off camera with you. So you're not alone or, you know, it's all that kind of stuff that just sort of like makes people feel at ease and feel safe and feel comfortable to expose themselves because that's really the job of the actor. And that's what you want to capture as the director. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I loved Unprison. That was a really great job. Yeah, so I guess, yeah, what's that? Like, what's out that people can watch right now? Oh, sure. What's coming down the pipeline, you know? Sure. I have two episodes of Imprison that came out. And then I have a new episode of Minx that I did right before your episode. So that will come out sometime soon. And then I have three episodes of Grownish that have yet, that will air in the new season. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to start a feature in a month. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Okay, we're rounding third. Okay, um, great. So I've got I've got one question first, which is usually how it goes. If you were making a biopic about yourself, who would play you? Who would direct the film? And what genre would it be in? Such a good question. Okay, so. I want to say it's a romantic comedy, but I have much more depth than I'm like much more emotionally unstable than that. So I'm not. So it's like, you know, a ro- it's like a comedy with heart is really what it is. It's a comedy with a lot of heart and a lot of emotions. I It'd be great if I could direct it, but if I'm not available for some reason, like the sort of go-to, like my directors that I put up on a pedestal that I like, I love Rob Reiner. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like I love a little, I, if Nora Ephron, if she were, I would want her to sort of craft my thing. You know, I wish Mr. Spielberg would know who I am. You know, those are sort of like those really, they are emotional. They landed. It looks beautiful. Right. I love them. I would love, you know, Natalie Portman, lots of, lots of threads that feel very similar. But again, mm-hmm. if she's not available, I could play myself. Um <laughs> But, you know, I think it's just like a story very similar to you, like a young hustler girl that like doesn't want to take no for an answer. And I'm just sort of out to prove to everybody, including myself, that I can like do what I haven't seen before. Mm. Do you write? I kind of ish. But on set, I'm always kind of like, hey, say this or hey, Mm -hmm. say that and da 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 da. And then I like kind of, they stay. So I kind of can like accentuate what's there. Or like I, you know, the features that I am attached to, a lot of them are sort of scripts that are work in progress and I can come mm-hmm. in and like repitch what I want the movie to be. Right, right. And work with the writers. Right. Okay. Yeah, I imagine that you did. That's why I was like, ah, we haven't talked about that. But just mm-hmm. because it's not on IMDb does not mean it's not happening, you know? What three traits would you say are required or helpful to have to make it in this industry? Perseverance. Mm -hmm. 
like a relentless push. You just like the chutzpah thing. It's like just mm-hmm. constant, endless chutzpah of like, I'm available. Can you where I can work? I'll do the work, you know? And it's so chutzpah, perseverance. I think those are kind of the same thing. Incredible drive, ambition. And at the same time, you really need to show up on time. Mm-hmm. You need to know what your job is and stay in your lane. Mm. I like, you know, I don't think anyone has said stay in your lane, but that that is such a, a, a key thing. Yeah, yeah. Without, as an without actor being and a director. Small, right? No. Without making yourself small, you can stay in your lane and, and thrive. That's it. Just stay in your line. Come in. I know what the job is. You know, mm-hmm. like when shit's, when stuff's blowing up on set, as an ep- they're not looking to me as the episodic director to fix it. They're just waiting right. to tell me what they want me to do, and I'm doing it. Same thing as an actor. They're not asking me for writing notes. Right, right. right <laughs> they're right, just asking right. me to show up and say, right? So, yeah, I think those are the important ones. And, and a really positive attitude. There you go. All right. Anything... I haven't asked you that you want to answer or add, you know, that um, gives people a proper context of of Siri Appleby. The only other thing I would say, if you really want to make it in Hollywood, is save your money. Mm. Because there are going to be a lot of times that you're down and like the royalties don't come in as much and you want to keep living the same quality of life and you don't want to walk into a room with the stink of desperation because you need to pay the bills. Mm. And you get large chunks of cash really quickly. So my real advice is save your money and buy a house. All right. There you go. There you go, people. Well, Siri, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Absolute pleasure. And I look forward to either passing on a director's chair to you or taking one from you on some show again in 2023. I hope so. I can't wait. All right. What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and on Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on Facebook on our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman official page and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T-M-O-N. All right, folks, that was episode 46 with Sherry Appleby. Tune in next week for episode, drumroll, 47 with my man Brian Kabovchik from Fuse FX. He's a VFX supervisor over at that great post-production house that I've worked with on multiple shows. And we will get into the nitty gritty of VFX. In the meantime... Fair and happy negotiations to the DGA and AMPTP. Let's work this thing out. Let's get this Writers Guild negotiation to a good conclusion. And in the meantime, of course, stay safe, spread love, and keep creating.